great future. We're talking real money. As episodes of Talking Real Money go, they just don't get any better than this one, I think. I'm predicting the future, which is not something I generally do, but but I have a feeling that we're going to have a very good podcast for you. I'm Don McDonald, Tom Cox over there. This is Talking Real Money, where we, uh, gee, hmm, talk about real money. And today we have one of those very rare guests, but we have this rare guest because there are things going on in the world. We just had a class about how you need to control your emotions, keep calm so you can retire strong. And right now, there's a lot of stuff we're worrying about. So we were lucky to be able to get uh, the senior investment director and vice president. He's the vice president. I don't know if they have a special song. No, that's the president. Uh, Wes Krill from Dimensional Fund Advisors in lovely Austin, Texas, joining us on the podcast. And Wes, welcome to Talking Real Money. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. And I appreciate the bold prognostication earlier, as you know, about Dimensional. You know, we don't make a lot of predictions about the future in terms of markets, but hopefully we can satisfy that prediction you made earlier about the quality of the podcast. Oh, yeah, that was rather bold. Well, finally, I'll be right about something. You haven't heard the other ones, Wes, so it's not saying that much, actually. So uh, today, it's all about the debt ceiling. Um, You know, we have this discussion at home, but that's a whole other debt ceiling. But you recently wrote, when it comes to famous ceilings, U.S. government debt limit is right up there with the Sistine Chapel. Now, this is all over the news. This is a big crisis, I guess, at the moment. But what is your take when we look back at this in 10 years? Is this going to be a big deal or not? Well, it's funny you mentioned when we look back in 10 years, because it was just a little bit over 10 years where we had, you know, a pretty notable level of consternation over what they were calling the debt ceiling crisis back in 2011. It was interesting because I had only been at Dimensional for about a year. And you know, I came from an engineering background. I was still kind of getting my feet wet in terms of understanding financial markets and all the complexity there. But the way people were talking about this, it almost sounded like that Y2K crisis, if you remember that back in the late 90s, where it was like, we had this point of no return. What's going to happen when we go past this? Of course, what happened at that point in time? Well, we moved on with our lives. The debt ceiling was raised. Um, and I think that's an important thing for investors to keep in mind is that this is not all that together rare of an occurrence. There's been 78 instances since 1960 where this debt ceiling was lifted. And you can think about that as, okay, well, this is the allowance of debt that the government is allowed to borrow and that's you know, allowed by, by Congress. And they will periodically raise this through time. So I think that's what people are eagerly anticipating to see what happens here. Um, and I think when we look back on it, you know, hopefully we look back on it similarly to 2011, where we said, well, maybe there was much ado about nothing. But what if, what if there is something? What if Congress and the White House cannot agree on the, the things they're each asking for? One asking basically for just raising the debt ceiling. The other saying, we got to cut the budget dramatically. What if they don't reach a compromise by the end of May and uh, this thing uh, gets worse and we're not paying our debt? What happens then? And what do you see happening to the to the uh, markets? See, oh, we're predicting again. 
Yeah, we, you asked two very important questions, one of them which I think is probably the most relevant for investors. But let's start with that first question about what would happen. So, if they're not able to, in fact, raise the debt ceiling and, and borrow more money, or you can also suspend it, that's a whole other thing we can get into. But if there's no flexibility there, then they might not be able to meet certain obligations. Now, what are those obligations? Well, they range from being able to make principal payments on on U.S. issued debt, uh, paying government employee salaries, uh, you know, things like social security payments. There's a whole range of outcomes, whole range of obligations that could potentially fall by the wayside or at least be delayed. Um, and I don't think it's totally clear which ones would be preferentially not met. Um, and I think that's something important for investors to keep in mind because the range of outcomes is so vast that it's probably not clear how you could predict or which ones you can predict in this scenario. So I fall back on what are we seeing from markets. Now, if markets were considering this especially concerning for the U.S. as a credit out there, as you know, someone uh, who can borrow money, I think we would be seeing it in Treasury yields. So if I go back to 2011, and you know that's an interesting example because you had again a similar level of consternation. You also ultimately had a downgrading of U.S. debt from AAA to AA, if you guys remember. And what did we see from yields on U.S. Treasuries back then? Well, they weren't spiking. You, know, you look around the world a few years later, where you had other debt crises happening in other countries, and their sovereign yields were going up into you know tens of percent. That's not what we saw in the U.S. In fact, we saw the U.S. yields trending downward in that period in 2011. So that's something we've been observing over the past six to 12 months here as well. Well, more or less six months. Obviously, you had spikes in yields last year for other reasons. But we've seen U.S. Treasury yields trending down so far this year. And there's not a lot of smoke to indicate that investors are expecting a fire when it comes to U.S. You know, as a sovereign credit. So I take that as the market suggesting that this will get resolved in one way or another. And whatever that resolution is may not be impacting an investor's fixed income portfolio here in the U.S. And so the people listening to our podcast are saying, all right, a lot of information here. Seems kind of confusing. What might get paid? What might wouldn't get paid? What do I do? I mean, what do you tell an individual who is retired, close to retiring, investing, should they be doing anything with their portfolio today, or is this just going to be part of the background that they're going to look at later and think that was like Y2K? Got all worked up about it, but no reason to be worked up about it. Yeah, sometimes the best decisions an investor can make is to not do anything. right? So unless you have valuable information that you think is going to reliably inform a better way to go about investing then you're typically best served by just staying the course and sticking with your financial plan. And you know, when we look at what an investor could potentially do here, well, it's not clear they're going to be able to come up with a good prediction about what's going to happen. And even if they can predict what's going to happen, it might not give them any relevant information for how they should change their asset allocation. And the other thing is, you know, when we think about all of the different market forces that impact, say, bond yield or bond prices equivalently, this is one of many, but it's certainly not going to be the only one. You still have uncertainty over what the Fed is going to do, uh, you know, and among many other things that can impact fixed income markets. And uh, we do have proxies 
for or uh, data points that give us a representation of what the market expects the volatility to be in fixed income markets in the short term. Um, there's an index called the Move Index, uh, and it's basically the fixed income version of the VIX index, so telling you about short term expected volatility. And it's very elevated right now. In fact, it's about as elevated as it was in the financial crisis of 2008. So what that tells me is there's lots of uncertainty factoring into fixed income markets that may or may not even be related to this debt ceiling conversation. So for investors who are trying to get an edge on the marketplace, they got to be able to cover all of these different bases. And we know historically there has not been a high success rate of trying to make these kind of predictions. Um, you know, what one indicator we can use for this is what's the frequency of active bond fund managers being able to do better than just your plain Jane buy and hold index benchmarks. And they do so at a very, very low rate, right? So that is consistent with the market boiling all these expectations and the prices. Unless you think you can get an edge over the hundreds of millions of market participants out there that are trading every day, I think investors are best served by sticking with what they have, but also leaving themselves open to flexibility. You know, when we manage our bond strategies, one of the key things we try and do is have flexibility so that when things change in the marketplace, when the investment opportunity set changes, we can alter our portfolios so that investors don't have to worry about doing that themselves. But traditionally, the bond market has not been one of a great deal of volatility. It's not a market where there's a lot of trading, particularly among individuals. People buy bonds, they hold bonds. That's been tradition for most. The, it's a non-volatile market, so there's not going to be a lot of, of retail worry about bonds, I don't think. But the, the place where people are worried is the equity markets. And what would a debt ceiling-induced recession due to their holdings and uh, the what what might be the long-term impact of that on portfolios yeah it's it's another thing where I'm, I'm going to look to what is the market data telling me I think it's clear that the outcome of this debt ceiling issue not being resolved on time is that there could be a whole range of impacts in terms of payments that would be made. But in terms of what the equity market thinks will be the fallout, again, I can look to, you know, we mentioned VIX uh, and the move index as being forward looking proxies for expected volatility. The VIX, in contrast to the move index and fixed income, the VIX and equities is still quite low. So if I look at that as expected volatility being pretty low, that tells me that market participants, stock market investors, do not have their feathers very ruffled right now about this. They're probably not expecting a lot of impact on their holdings. And so that's a good point for investors. Even when we start to look at some other indicators out there, and this is something that started to come up when we were looking at the, the regional banking crisis, we started to look at other indicators for are there cracks in the foundation that investors are seeing, and you know, national financial conditions index type of data, where we could see what is the outlook on the overall marketplace, including the economy. And those indicators tended to be pretty low as well. Uh, certainly not something that looked like stress levels were boiling over about all of this. And again, I think it comes back to the stuff that is making news headlines might not always be the best determinant for investors when they're thinking about where they should be investing. So for stock market investors, still seems to be the case that probably not something you need to be taking into account for your asset allocation. For years, we have told people, Use index mutual funds. Buy the market, keep your costs low, be tax efficient, tune everything out. 
And of course, we've worked with dimensional funds going back to 1997, have a great relationship, still use your, your, your funds. But then we're into this weird gray area where people really, if they really push on us a little bit, it's like, should you just be in an index or should you be in something that's, well, kind of index-like? So that forces us to ask you, is dimensional a passive management shop or is it an active <laughs> management shop? <laughs> it's interesting because I actually have listened to some of your podcasts and I've heard this question come up in the past and I think it's an interesting one. So the reason why we think of index fund investing as being such a great development in the industry is because it was veering away from traditional active methods of investing that were really based around the premise that markets were getting things wrong. They were trying to pick stocks they thought were undervalued. They were trying to time markets. The nice thing about index fund investing is it was an active embracing market prices. It was saying, okay, if there's three quarters of a trillion dollars traded on average every day in security prices, probably not likely I'm going to find anything that the rest of the market is missing out on. So by embracing market prices, we think that was already a step ahead. Now, there were some shortcomings that would be associated with index fund investing. The most relevant for me is that you're outsourcing the investment process. So what does that mean? Well, let's say I'm tracking an index that is created by Russell or MSCI. That means that the decision about what to hold and when to hold it is being dictated by that index provider. right? So I'm not making that decision on my own, which means that over the course of time, my exposure to the asset class might be drifting. I might have to concentrate all of my trading, so I might get suboptimal trade cost execution in those securities. Um, so there are drawbacks that can be fixed by taking the premise behind index fund investing, which is to embrace market prices, not to try and outguess them, but you can fix some of the flaws associated with index fund investing by having flexibility. And what that means is determining what you want to hold and when you want to hold it, and by doing that on a daily basis. You still preserve a lot of the nice you know, attributes of index funds. Uh, you have low turnover, you can have broad diversification, low costs associated with it. But you can think about it as spreading out all of that trading activity the analogy I sometimes use is if you were going to prepare to go see a dentist, okay, you got a couple of options here. Number one is you could brush your teeth a little bit every day. It's usually the advisable route to go. Or you could brush your teeth three hours a day before the visit and call it a day. Now, your dentist is probably going to find one of those more reliable in terms of the other, in terms of your long-term dental success. And we think it's similar for managing funds. We can take all these attributes of index funds and spread them out throughout time. Well then, okay. So, what it is there, uh, and we ask this of uh, one of your competitors: is there a better term? Because right now, active in the vernacular tends to mean fundamental or technical analysis of individual stocks within a portfolio and picking them based on all kinds of attributes. But mainly, it's management. Is the parking lot full? Is the chart? Uh, in retrograde or what, you know, all these weird little things that, that used people used to pick stocks. That is my perception of active management. Is there a better term we can use for funds like fund groups like dimensional? Yeah, I think the reason why the active passive labeling has, has become a little bit murkier is because it's sort of outgrown the original debate. So the way I like to clarify it is to separate out the active versus passive distinction into two different segments of the overall investment process. The first is the philosophy, 
And the second is the implementation. So the philosophy, the active versus passive distinction, is going back to what I was saying about are you embracing prices or are you trying to outguess them? If you're embracing them, you have a passive philosophy. If you're trying to outguess markets, you have an active philosophy. So along those lines, we would say we're passive because we believe in using market prices. Now, the implementation is a different story. The implementation, active versus passive distinction, comes down to do you outsource your investment process and track an index that someone else is designing and updating? Then you're passive in your implementation. Are you making a decision based on all the relevant information about how to pursue your investment objective every day with flexibility and not outsourcing it? That's active implementation. And so we would fall into the active implementation camp. But you can see it's really a two-dimensional assessment there where we're passive slash active. I'll give you a counterexample, by the way, which might be helpful in understanding how these labels could be reversed on both sides of that assessment. So let's say I have, and I'll, I'll put a name to this shortly, but let's say I have an index-based ETF. Okay, So right then and there, the, you know the implementation is going to be passive because it's an index-based ETF. It's being managed in accordance with an index that's being designed. It's totally outsourced. But let's say I tell you that it is a, an investment objective that's very niche, that is themed on companies that are expected to do really well based on the spending patterns of millennials. Okay, By the way, there is such an ETF out there. So what that implies is that this is targeted at investors who want to get ahead of the market because they think these stocks that are likely to benefit from millennials' expenditures are underpriced. So now if I go back to my philosophical assessment, this is an active philosophy. If you had a purely passive view on markets, you're probably not going to be targeting a niche portion of it to capitalize on millennial expenditures. So you have an active philosophy with a passive implementation. So you can see how they can be different depending on which part of the investment segment you're looking at. It is complicated, I think, for most people. Uh, and speaking of that, as you know, we have for decades told people, yeah, you really should own more small companies. You really should try to tilt the portfolio to value. Maybe think about some of the other sort of premiums you can enjoy by doing this right. But your critics, Rick Ferry among them, are telling people, well, that worked for a while, but now that everybody else is investing in those sort of things, it doesn't work anymore. How do you respond to that criticism? Yeah, from day one, we've tried to appeal to the academic research to identify sources of higher expected returns, specifically stocks that have higher expected returns in the overall market, not because we're guessing they're going to, not because we're doing fundamental research on these companies individually. It's because we believe there have to be differences in expected returns across stocks. And just that philosophy right there, by the way, is as sensible as saying, if I have a 1,000 people who go to a bank for a loan, they're probably not going to all get the same interest rate. There's going to be differences in rates given to different consumers based on their creditworthiness, risk, whatever the case may be. So same thing we think applies to the stock market. So then how do we identify stocks that have different levels of expected return? Well, this is really basic. You know, We think that there should be price-based variables, and variables informing what you expect to receive in the future. It's like if you go and buy a car, okay, so what are the indicators you're going to use to figure out if a car is a good deal or not? We might say, okay, what's the make, the model, the mileage, the you know, whatever, gives you some indication of what I expect to receive for buying this car. And then what makes it meaningful at the end of the day as an investment 
not that cars are a good investment, but you see where I'm going with this, is the price. When I combine price with these expected future indicators, then I can determine whether I want to make that purchase or not. We're doing the same thing in stock markets. We're looking at price-based variables such as market capitalization. You mentioned small caps. That's a market capitalization characteristic. Also, price to book. So, all that's being equal, we're overweighting stocks with lower price to book ratios. The notion behind those is they're telling you something about how little or how much you're paying for a stock. On the other side of the coin, what tells me about what I expect to receive in the future? Well, the profitability characteristics of a stock. If I have a company that has high profitability, those companies tend to continue to have high profitability, which means they have more cash to return to investors, either dividends or share repurchases. So the combination of those three variables we believe informs about differences in expected returns. Now, here's the kicker, and this is why I belabored this theoretical argument for why they should exist in the first place, is the, the notion behind those premiums, that if I pay less for something or expect to receive more, that logic can't go away unless you tell me there's no longer differences in stock returns in the market. As long as you believe that that is still a reasonable premise to uphold, that there's differences in discount rates across these companies, then you've told me there continue to be size, value, and profitability premiums. Now, the catch is these premiums have variability through time. So, value stocks and underperform growth stocks for a long period of time. Small caps can underperform large caps for a long period of time. Stocks can underperform one-month treasury bills for a long period of time, just in case you're wondering if this volatility applies to all premiums. If you were a stock investor and you started in 1965, congratulations, your first 16 years of investing, stocks underperformed one-month treasury bills. So, we see this variability. I know, that's a sobering statement if you think about it. And actually, the volatility of the data tells us it could be even longer, uh, depending on what the range of outcomes is. So, these premiums can go through barren periods. And I think it's important for investors not to have the, have the reaction that I guess some people out in the industry have, which is if I don't see it for a certain period of time, I believe it's gone away. It can't go away. Could it be smaller or larger <laughs> in the future? It's always possible. We actually have no idea what the true expected magnitude is for any of these things. We believe it's got to be positive. That's about as much assurance as I can give you. Um, but I think that's an important thing to keep in mind for investors is there is variability in these things that look very good historically, but we believe they're worthwhile wagers to make if you're trying to do better than the overall market. Certainly a way higher probability proposition than outguessing the market. Wow. Wow. Before I get to my question, um, Tom, this just reinforces what we tell people that when they say, why do I want, why do I need bonds in my portfolio? They're boring. Well, there you go. That 16 year number he just gave. That's the one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, And speaking of our individual investors who listen to our podcast, there are a number of them, a very large number, despite the fact that they listen to our podcast religiously, they say, who continue to believe that they know at least enough about their company and maybe a few others to be able to to own those individual stocks in their portfolio because, gee, it's obvious that they're going to do well. Tesla comes to mind. Uh, based on your knowledge, your experience, how would you argue succinctly and in a way that that really carries weight that trying to do so is a fool's game? Yeah, this is a pretty common familiarity bias where, you know, there's two different reasons why someone might believe that a company they work for, companies that are in the same sector in which they're employed, uh, that they have a better feel for what the expected returns are going to be. Now, one of them is because, again, they're reading 
all of this information about these different companies or you know they have based on what they expect this company to do maybe they just really like the products they really believe in what they're doing effectively what they're doing is making decisions based on the same information that's available to everybody out there you know it's like everyone's excited about apple because they love their ipads and their iphones and you know all the other products that are produced but that's the same reason why the valuations for a company like apple are sky high the discount assigned to their expected future cash flows is lower than it might be otherwise because there is a continued belief that they're going to be delivering outstanding products well into the future. So that's something for investors to keep in mind is that they might be reacting to information that's already known, which means they're probably going to get whatever the market's rate of return is for that security. And the more popular, the bigger, the growthier that company is, the lower that expect return is likely to be. Um, there's always a possibility that maybe they have inside information about something that's going to happen. We know from the data that insiders actually can do better than the market. Of course, you know they're possibly treading on illegal waters there if they're trading on um, <laughs> material information that's not yet been released. So that's something else they should probably keep in mind. But if yeah. the overall perception is this company is going to do well because I know what they do and I like what they do, that's not going to get you an edge in marketplace. And most importantly, it potentially opens you up to a big downside which is something we see when we look at the performance of individual stocks. I wrote a paper about this a couple of years ago where just the delist rate among stocks can be really substantial. You have a much higher probability of your investment going to zero if you're invested in individual stocks. And the wild thing about this is the attrition rate among stocks didn't seem to be especially sensitive to how well it had done in the past. You get up companies that were outperforming the market over the past 20 years, and still might go bust over the next five years. It's actually fun, by the way, to go back and look in time to see what the 10 largest companies were in the U.S. stock market by decade. And you go back and, you know, in the, I believe it was in the 1970s, you had Sears in the top 10. I don't know how often you guys shop at Sears anymore. Not that often. Uh, yeah, really. Yeah, not, not real often. Um, Does then, anyone? You know, for, for some of us. <laughs> I yeah, mean, it was a great, you think about it as the proposition I they had used, back in the day, which you could go get a tire alignment, you could go get yeah. a toaster oven, buy new bedding for your master bedroom, um, all at the same time. And invest. And invest. Yeah, there you go. Uh, of course, now you can do a lot of that with Amazon. Yeah, we we had a we had a little bank out here called Washington Mutual too that everybody trusted as well that uh, had a little <laughs> yeah, issue well, fifteen I mean, years ago. So yeah, no, those are great, I mean, absolute like great Penn points. Central. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I, well, I I want to ask very just, but we got to do this quick. Go ahead. Mutual funds versus exchange traded funds, because when people oh, ask question. me, I say the future is all about exchange traded funds, but. What is dimensional stance on this? Because I know you have an awful lot of money that's managed through <laughs> mutual funds mm. as well. There's certain appealing characteristics of exchange traded funds versus mutual funds. A lot of it comes down to just the way that they do their turnover. Um, there can be advantages in terms of having the flexibility to determine when your capital gains are realized because they're not necessarily triggered by a turnover that's happening within the funds. So for uh, for tax-sensitive investors, there are some levers that they can pull there with ETFs that aren't broadly available in the current market with mutual funds. Uh, but in turn... If I'm thinking about which one should an investor choose, that's a slightly different question because it's really what's under the hood that matters. Whether an ETF or a mutual fund is good for an investor depends on who's managing it. Right, So you can have, I mentioned an example earlier of something that is in an ETF structure, but might not be that appealing to investors. The range of fees and characteristics, like the number of holdings, are just as vast, ranging from unappealing to desirable in ETFs as they are with mutual funds. 
the delist or the attrition rate with ETFs is as high. It's about 4% per year of ETFs that drop out of the market altogether, just like it is for mutual funds. So investors definitely should consider what's under the hood very carefully. If an investment uh, process is done in a reliable, robust way, it's just as viable in an ETF as it is for a mutual fund. And that's why we offer both. We didn't have strategies. They're the same underlying investment objective that are in both the ETF and mutual fund wrapper. Wes Krill, thank you so much. Wes is from Dimensional Funds. He's uh, the senior investment director, vice president, and uh, uh, a very well-spoken person who used to, uh, apparently, he was an engineer. He drove a train or something. <laughs> you can see that, yeah. Good yeah. job I, there. I simulated yeah. things related to a train. Yeah, very, okay. very dynamic well, environment. Sports, <laughs> Uh, we really appreciate all of you listening and we hope that that was enlightening. Uh, I, I found it enlightening. There's some good stuff there. Again, we just go back to that point. Quit trying to beat the market. You're going to fail. You're going to fail. Be the market. Don't beat the market. And then kind of overweight some things. And we talked about a few of those. So thanks for being a part of this podcast. I'm Don McDonald with Tom Cock and Wes Krill from Dimensional Funds. We really appreciate you being there. Tell your friends, leave a really nice review at Apple Podcasts, and we'll be back very, very soon doing what we do all the time, and that is Talking Real Money. We hope you realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for informational, educational, and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time, so please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately and consistently predict the future, so past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program is provided as a public service by Appella Capital, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. And to keep the lawyers happy.